Welcome to the Solid Verbal. The Solid Verbal. Come after me. I'm a man. I'm 40. I've heard so many players say, well, I want to be happy. You want to be happy for a day? Eat a steak. It's that woo woo. And now, Dan and Ty. Welcome back to the Solid Verbal. My name is Dan Rubenstein. You are hearing my voice introduce this episode. One, because Ty is either packing for Mexico or he's already in Mexico probably by the time you're listening to this show. And you know what? Good for him. He deserves it. But it is a bonus episode because our good friend Bruce Feldman, of course, of FoxSports.com and all sorts of previously authored books has a new book that is on shelves, I think, today as we are recording this Tuesday evening called The QB. It's all about the the sort of making of the modern quarterback. Bruce, welcome. And how are you? I'm doing great. I'm sorry I'm missing Ty, but... um... You know, let's be honest, you're the brains of this operation. So, Absolutely true. Um, I'm glad to join you. Great. So what is what is the elevator pitch? What is the, um, when you have somebody next to you on a plane or something like that, and like, what do you do, and you get to talking about the book, what is this book about at its core? Well, it's the most important position in sports, and for <laughs> years, everybody, including the NFL, has has basically gotten it wrong like half the time when they've picked a quarterback and they right. spend you know a fortune on it guys get fired and and so i started out looking at okay why are they so bad at the evaluation part and the more i got into it it really you know started to examine how the quarterback world has changed once you go down this kind of rabbit hole that it is in the last decade their private quarterback coaches popping up all over the place george whitfield is now on college game day every saturday morning mm-hmm. uh trent dilfer former super bowl winning quarterback he's a you know, big presence at ESPN and is probably the biggest devotee to the quarterback position on the planet. And by, you know, for any book, I've realized you need a, at least a, one main character who can carry the book. Somebody who is very open and, you know, almost like to a fault will mm-hmm. let, will let their guard down and tell you whatever's going through the head. Somebody may be fundamentally flawed. And in Dilfer's case, you have a guy who is haunted by his own failures as an NFL quarterback. Now, he yeah. won a Super Bowl, but he would he said, you know, he would look at for years and stay and keep himself up at night. Why was Brett Favre a Hall of Famer and why was I just average? Now, this is a guy who set an NCAA record for most uh most passes without an interception and then goes mm-hmm. in the NFL and starts to struggle. And he kind of realized a lot of the stuff that he was taught and had been taught and even at the highest level in the NFL was wrong. And so that was kind of the premise of, okay, what are people getting taught? How is this dynamic kind of unfolding since all these now quarterbacks have quarterback coaches? Um, and it was real fascinating to see, you know, like that John Gruden show that everybody loves mm-hmm. before the draft. It's a little window into the preparation and the testing and, and to see, well, okay, well, how do coaches, how do, you know, they, it's like they're speaking a different language. We recognize it's a different language, but we don't know the language and kind of walk people through what that language actually is, as, as in this case, Johnny Manziel and Logan Thomas mm-hmm. were going through the process, being taught, you know, all that stuff as they got ready for the draft. So the three main characters of the book are Trent Dilfer, a protege of his, George Whitfield, who's connected to a lot of people, and Johnny Manziel, who is like the biggest star in college football the last couple of years. This is totally true. So you start out the book talking about sort of Dilfer's beliefs and, as you mentioned, his failures and the, as I think he calls it, the ecosystem that he's trying to build with his, again, quote, cult of the Elite 11, which sounds a lot worse than it actually is. He just, he wants to learn how to make a better quarterback, whether it's 15-year-olds, 18-year-olds, 22-year-olds, whatever the case, what what goes into the position mentally, physically, what the commonalities are among successful quarterbacks. So you outline early on in this book, we, we hear names like Steve Clarkson, uh, George Whitfield, as you mentioned, private quarterback coaches whose names are generally trailed with all of the stars they've worked with, Roethlisberger, Luck, Newton, whatever. But how do they go specifically from former players, coaches of teams, and then confident that they can develop quarterbacks to people actually doing this for a living, and in the case of Whitfield, talking about games on ESPN. Whitfield's case is a crazy one. I mean, I first met Whitfield probably before a lot of people. I'd never heard of the guy, and I was working with Yogi Roth. We Mm -hmm. were doing what was kind of like the pilot version of what became the Elite 11 show, and so 
we each had a cameraman with us, and we were going to a Nike camp that that USC it was being hosted at USC. Mm-hmm. And so I was doing the parent slash coach kind of the the personality side, and Yogi was doing the on field stuff. And so I would talk to parents, and Jesse Scroggins' dad was remarkably odd and curious of how you know his story and how he trained his son. And then I met George Whitfield, who had about seven quarterbacks. He were driven up from San Diego in some caravan. One of his quarterbacks was a four-star guy named Pete Thomas. Mm-hmm. Pete Thomas has since, you know, started at three different schools and had an okay career, but bounced around. But he, you know, he looked apart, but he really struggled there. And and you know, Whitfield had told me about another kid who was like the six-five kid who was about to blow up. George George said, "Well, at the camp, he really, really struggled to the point where the kid tried to get into the good group and kind of like blend in and kind of sneak his way in." And one of the counselors there just basically called the kid out. It was a humiliating scene to see. And I remember thinking, well, this is the last time I ever see George Whitfield. He's just going to be some guy who just kind of, that's that. Right. And then, I don't know, like a, a year later, Ben Roethlisberger is suspended by the NFL and ends up training with George Whitfield. <laughs> and then uh, not long after that, Cam Newton wins the Heisman and Cam Newton's getting ready for the draft. And I get a call from George Whitfield and guess who's training him? And George Whitfield. And then the more time I spent around Whitfield, I started to see, you know, he definitely had some unconventional methods. The, you know, chasing guys with a broom, you didn't mm-hmm. see that from other people. You know, having quarterbacks take their drop in the Pacific Ocean, you definitely didn't see that from other people. And there was a lot of other stuff. And then the more I realized is Whitfield's greatest strength is that he is a really good communicator. And in anything, especially in writing, you don't want to get bogged down with cliches. The message just kind of goes flat. People just kind of gloss over it. Whitfield is very smooth and slick at coming up with different ways to phrase things or, quote, message things that, that resonate with people, especially with 18, 19, 20-year-old quarterbacks. Mm-hmm. And so I saw that more and more. And, and his, I don't want to call it an empire, but you know Johnny Manziel went to him when Johnny Manziel was a nobody. And he helped develop Manziel, gave him some confidence. I also think he gave Manziel, you know, he becomes like a big brother to a lot of these kids. They have a, you know, a texting, you know, call a couple times a week relationship where maybe they feel they can tell George Whitfield stuff they can't tell their private court, their real quarterback coach in college. And the dynamic with Whitfield and college coach is pretty interesting because I, you know, talk to a bunch of college coaches right. who aren't huge fans of George Whitfield or how he coaches or his methods. Why but is that? Uh, they're skeptical. They just don't think that stuff like that, they, they don't teach it. I mean, this is a lot of guys. and But they come back to it and say, you know, one thing I've heard is, I never want you to come back to me and say, but George says. I don't right. want to hear that. You know, like, we're going to do things how we do it here. But they do say, and this is almost to a man, if the quarterback comes back with more confidence and feels like he's gotten better, that's really all that matters because it's such a confidence game. And remember, in the NCAA rules, there's certain times when coaches really can't be hands-on with the players. So if the kid's family or a kid can afford to spend a week in San Diego and pay for George Woodfield's training and the, and the travel, then they're okay with it because they know he's not out in you know, Cabo San Lucas or you know, somewhere you know, getting loaded or may get into like, fights on spring break or whatever. So they're okay with it, I guess. Is there a reason these guys, and there have been a few guys that have been successful, uh, George Whitfield obviously appears to be the biggest, at least most public name in terms of private quarterback coaching now. Is there a reason they prefer to stay private instead of going, you know, why isn't George Whitfield the quarterback's coach for the New England Patriots or the Green Bay Packers or UCLA to, to sort of make things more official? I don't know what kind of living he makes. I'm assuming pretty well if he's, you know, I, you, you mentioned some of the figures that the, the parents of these prospects pay, and he's, he's in San Diego, so appears to have a pretty good setup. But why not make it, I suppose, more mainstream, more official? I think that's a, just a, it's a different animal. You know, quite honestly, watching him train Manziel for the draft, mm-hmm. I mean, George didn't play in the NFL. He has no, he never coached in the NFL. So that world is different. I mean, a lot of, sure. you got to remember, a lot of, what NFL quarterback coaches do is getting ready for an opponent, and that's not what George does. Mm-hmm. So when he got when he was getting ready, uh, Johnny Manziel ready for the draft. George was on the field with some technique stuff and some footwork stuff. And Kevin O'Connell, former backup to Tom Brady and bounced around the league for five years, mm-hmm. he was the guy doing the boardroom stuff and the and and the guy on the board and doing a lot of the film stuff because you know he's the one who knows Mike Pettin and knew a yeah. lot of these 
you know, coaching trees and knew what they what they taught, how they spoke. Uh, Kevin O'Connell had been through the process where five or seven years earlier he had been a draft prospect going through. So he was sitting in where Johnny and Logan Thomas were sitting and answering a lot of the same questions, and he knew the personalities. Now, Whitfield is, um, I think through Dilfer, he got an internship with the 49ers this summer and spent a little time there, okay. and I know that He's a Cam Cameron was one of the first, you know, people really in the inside the business who had helped him. And when Cameron was coaching with the Chargers, Whitfield, and this is you know probably a dozen years ago, he let Whitfield spend some time there as an internship. But again, you got to remember that's limited. It's not like there's a lot of game planning or that's a, it's just a different animal that what you're talking about. Not to um, I, I don't want to phrase this improperly, but. You've been around college football. You've been around college football coaches, players, whatever, for years upon years. Do you, and it's not necessarily your, your job to buy in or not buy in, but does it strike you at all as hocus pocus, or do you feel like there is actual merit to the unconventional methods and, as Trent Dilfer calls it, the, the ecosystem, the all-encompassing way of sort of trying to rewire quarterback brains? Does it make sense to you or is there an element to it that you're still a little bit i'll wait and see if this actually works no i think there's definitely something to it i mean look here's a good example everett golson goes away from notre dame for a year and he basically Mm -hmm. moves to san diego and is with whitfield every day i mean they work on specific things and i think you know you're tightening up and refining your mechanics a lot of the stuff that dilfer is teaching was stuff that some things were, were he learned from Tom House, who's a this biomechanics expert and a former, you know, he's he's edu- you know he's well educated in the biomechanics part and a lot of other things. And mm-hmm. you know, he'd been Drew Brees had been working with him for a decade, and so I think a lot of this stuff is rooted in solid things. Um, that doesn't mean that like their evaluation on every guy is going to be spot on. You know, I think sometimes they're going to miss, just like everything else. And I think sometimes you can overthink it. I mean, Johnny Manziel won a Heisman in large part because Johnny Manziel could do some amazing things when right. plays break down and just improvising and in a lot of ways like Brett Favre could. You know, now do you bog him down by trying to make him into something else by doing too much in the pocket or how you coach him? That's possible. So, but I do, you know, I do subscribe to some of the stuff Bill for after seeing it and hearing the practical application of some of the things he's imploring these guys to do. I mean, Jordan Palmer's a Trent Dilfer uh, junior or Trent Dilfer mm-hmm. disciple, and I saw how he coached Blake Bortles in his combine prep, and I thought it was interesting. A lot of the criticisms or skepticism that draft people had about Blake Bortles was based on what they saw on film at UCF, not necessarily what he was doing when he got ready for the draft, and I think that's a credit to to Jordan Palmer, what he did. I mean, so, you know, as much as on a, on a, on a different level, as much as people can be skeptical of, of Steve Clarkson, who has made a fortune in mm-hmm. training kids and especially the parents of the kids of rich parents, um, he's developed a lot of quarterbacks. You know, I mean, I work with him. Matt Leiner won a Heisman. Yep. He's a long time Steve Clarkson guy. Steve Clarkson has a lot of protégés, you know, and you can ask, you know, Jimmy Clausen's dad says none of my kids would have been, anywhere near what they were if I didn't spend six figures on Steve Clarkson developing them. Because you got to remember, quarterback, unlike any other position on the field, with the exception of probably kicker or punter, is not really natural. I mean, you could take a freak athlete, and, you know, if he's athletic enough, he could be a great defensive end. Sure. He could be, a, you know, a basketball player, could be a great receiver, great tight end, or, you know, maybe a cornerback. Quarterback there is no carryovers. It's like, you know, it's preparation. I mean, there's, there's definitely natural ability, but there's a lot of those intangibles and a lot of those traits just have to be developed over time. And I think that some of these guys are, are really good because they've been rooted in it for so long. You talked about with the Johnny Menzel, Brett Favre, uh, and you mentioned, I forget his name, Texas A&M's old quarterbacks coach, I think Rossley, who was with the Packers? Tom Rossley, yeah. yeah. He was the Packers coordinator for a while. Right, and so he, along with Mike Sherman, who had the offensive line background, and Rossley with the quarterback background, they recruit Menzel, eventually away from Oregon when he initially committed to Chip Kelly. Um, and Rossley mentioned the one thing that he sort of looks for and can turn a tape off after three plays is this magic element, where if quarterback has that magic, that's enough. 
how often because we we've seen tapes of these five-star quarterbacks who can improvise who pull off these ridiculous passes or dual threats and run four fives whatever what is the success rate of four five-star quarterbacks with that otherworldly athleticism i guess before manzella may have been terrell Pryor with that same sort of ability what is how rare is that sort of magic in developing and actually becoming maybe not a heisman but like a very good college quarterback well, I think you have to you have to look at it a couple of different ways. Like it, when he looked at Favre as the magic, it's not because he was a, necessarily a dual threat guy. Right. It's because when all stuff kind of bogged down, he could just do his own thing. I mean, there are some guys who are, you know, Terrell Pryor is just such a great athlete. You know, he could run over people if he was a tailback or something like that. I think when this is the magic part is I don't well I can't explain what I just did. It worked out great, and right. that's what Rossley said he saw with Favre. He saw it with Manziel. Um, it's almost like you're, it's almost like an out of body experience. And to some degree, I mean, I think you see it, you know, a guy who, who, who can do that, but also it's the downside of it is Tony Romo, right. you know, where I'm going to make a play somehow or whatever. And there are some guys like that. Now there's other guys where it's like, look, Tony Romo is, you know, will throw some picks and that, some of the Brett Favre threw a lot of picks. Mm-hmm. So I think that's what you got to, you know, factor in is how does it translate? I mean, you know, I talk to a lot of NFL personnel people in this process, and you know, sometimes you'd he- they, you'd hear the example of Vince Young. I mean, Vince Young basically, yeah. when he struggled early on, and Mac Brown and Greg Davis, Alvin's coordinator, you know, showed him a film of him in high school, and they said, "Where's that guy?" Mm-hmm. And basically, Vin- you know, they walked out of that meeting, and Vince Young was like, "Give me the keys to the offense, and just I'm going to do what I want to do." And they trusted him, and they won a national title. Well, in the NFL, as you know. NFL people told me eventually they're going to figure you out and you have to have a change up or you have right. to have another pitch. And that's where it gets interesting. I mean, Brett Favre, you know, he's a hall of famer and he, he did everything he could do. And I think it worked within the system of system of, of Mike Holmgren and everything like that. But there was a, I have an excerpt that we ran on Fox sports of, of these, you know, June Jones and his brain typing guy. Mm-hmm. And, it's fascinating to hear how a lot of most of the guys who won Super Bowls as quarterbacks were a certain kind of brain type. There's 16 different brain types. This one particular one rattles off a lot of guys, and they all seem to have whether it's Joe Namath or Joe Montana that kind of magic. Where when it's running the two-minute offense, and I think that's why that's one thing that's a great barometer of of or, you know, a metric, if you want, right. of where the success translates to. And, and you know, to a lesser degree, Cam Cameron, who's now the offense coordinator at LSU, he gave me his own little metric on, of, of how he evaluated guys. And he said, when well, I'm the coach of the Miami Dolphins, everybody thinks I'm going to draft Brady Quinn. And he goes, I looked at, you know, kind of what I, my variables, mm-hmm. what I charted, and Brady Quinn was not good in those things. So he, he was like, I don't want any part of that guy. And I think it's interesting to see when guys – have their curriculum or their own criteria, I should say, and where what fits and how it doesn't, and and what they what they stick with to see if it works. That goes into a, an interesting area which I wanted to ask you about because a lot of what seems to make a quarterback successful long term beyond you know the ability to to pick up concepts and physically execute those concepts is the the sort of confidence or I guess sense of invincibility so the first question would be how is that gauged in teenagers and second how if it's even possible do you harness that sort of invincibility to be strictly on the field invincible and not as we've seen in recent years with you know whether it's Jameis Winston Johnny Manziel um, Jeremiah Masoli these guys that are now thinking their life invincible what is the challenge there is it possible to harness Great question. Um, I would use an example. One of the Dolphers, you know, I wouldn't say his favorites, but a guy he really liked at the Elite 11 was this six foot, six one quarterback from Texas, David Blau, who had no offers, and, and they took him at the Elite 11, and then Purdue ended up getting on board with him. Right. And Blau was kind of parroted a lot of the stuff that Dolfer had been talking about on the Elite 11 shows the previous couple of years. And it, it, he really it came out in how he carried himself and what he did. And I think one of the things after, and he did well at the Elite 11, and, and you know, I think he's one of the top five guys there they ranked. But afterwards, I remember Dilfer, had, and his little message to him was, you know, 
you need to live in this kind of little make-believe reality that's your reality. Because this is a, this something actually I think translates away from football into like our own world. Like so many of us, and I, not to get into the Leach book much, but right. one thing I did learn from Leach that stuck with me was you get to be who you want to be. Now you may, you know, if you're in seventh grade or you're in 10th grade or all your high school buddies, everybody in your town knows you as a certain way, that's kind of tough because then you're going to be that person. You're mm-hmm. going to live down to those expectations. But if you move or you go to college or you get to kind of define who you are and get to get to be who you are. And I think to, to some extent, Dilfer's message to David Blau and other quarterbacks was, you know, this is your reality. You choose it. You pick it. And you listen to that. Don't listen to all these other people because enough of us, you know, we could listen to all the negativity and all the people telling us why we can't do things. Right. And it gets in the way. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't do you any good. I mean, you know, I remember talking to Kevin Plank for the Leech book and he's just, you know, made a fortune at Under Armour and, and had this great business. And he was like, if I went to these other schools, I probably would have been told lots of reasons why I couldn't do what I did. And I, I think that's, that's kind of Dilfer's message now. Managing it, like we're talking about with Jameis Winston or Johnny Manziel, I think that you know you need good support people around you. But you know to carry that over into having issues off the field and and you know where you're completely reckless and 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 don't get it. I think ultimately that's those are things that come back to maturity, but they also come around to to who the people are around you. Are they enabling you? Like, where is your, like, I think you need to know what the boundaries are between what's, what works on the football field and what you can get away with off it, you know. Is there, is there a ratio, just in terms of the, the people around you as you are developing and growing up, is there a ratio of success stories where parents or relatives who are looking after the quarterback um, – are the sort of helicopter parents and pushing things and getting the private coach and, you know, the first ones sending out tapes to schools rather than the, the parents that are sort of hands-off, supportive, but not the all-encompassing um, situations that we've seen with sports parents. Is there like an even mixed? Is there a success, is a success story with, you know, the more hands-off stuff? What, what appears to be the trend, if any? You know, it's uh, it's hard for me to say just because you know I dealt with the the like the best of the best. Mm-hmm. You know, and I would use the example of this this year in Southern California. You're a Southern California guy too, or from here. Yeah, there are the this is considered the best batch of quarterbacks that have come up probably ever. Now mm-hmm. there was a year where John Elway was here, and there was a couple of other guys who played in the NFL. And John Elway, I'd be you'd be hard pressed to expect any of these quarterbacks to have the career John Elway had, but. Um, you know, this group, you have a, you have like six of the top eight quarterbacks or so, high school quarterbacks are from here. You know, one's going to, to Alabama, Blake Barnett, mm-hmm. Josh Rosen is going to UCLA, uh, Ricky Towns going to USC, you know, there's, there's, and there's, goes on down the line. So when I went out to see Steve Clarkson, there were two guys who stood out on his, you know, on his weekly Sunday thing. One was Brady White, who's going to ASU. Mm-hmm. The other one was Travis Waller, who had not been committed anywhere and is now committed to go to Oregon. Mm-hmm. And Travis Waller, to me, was a very interesting kid. You know, he like look, uh, he's just like one of these kids who look like you'd see him on a on a TV show. He's just he's a good looking, always smiling kid, great athlete who was a track kid. And um, his mom, you know, basically single parent home. The mom. I think she told me that, you know, Travis does not have a car. Most of the kids who go to Clarkson seem to come from a lot of money. Travis right. Waller, not that way. Um, they drive, I think, like a Toyota Corolla. They share it. They rent an apartment. You know, basically she said, on Sundays, instead of going to church, we go to Steve. We don't. We made conscious decisions. We're not going out to eat, you know, we very often. We don't go to movies. We don't do a lot of the other things because we're basically paying for the Steve Clarkson training. Hmm. And I think they knew it was an investment. And Travis, Travis Waller, um, in a, and I say this in a positive way, he had a sense of urgency, and he was making sure he knew that, okay, we're sacrificing for this. I better get everything I can out of it. And, um, you know, I, he, he was a kid I came away liking a lot. Blake Barnett, uh, another Southern, Southern California kid, initially committed to Notre Dame, now committed to Alabama, seemed to be a uh, reasonably well-grounded kid mm-hmm. and he was in a little bit where like Steve Clarkson at one point was you know was seen as his you know his uh his mentor and Dennis Guile is one of one of uh 
one of Trent Dilfer's proteges who's out in Arizona. You know, it was almost like a custody battle over him. And ultimately, wow. Blake Barnett felt more connected to Dennis Guile. Um, but, you know, you can see how it can be awkward for these guys and a lot of them. I mean, Ricky Town, the kid who's going to USC and at one point had been committed to, to Alabama, another L.A. kid, Ricky Town grew up in the, in the Bay Area or in Northern California, I should say, and had been going to Steve Clarkson when he was like fifth, sixth grade. Mm -hmm. Clarkson convinces the family to move to Southern California because wow. of the training so much. And then eventually, uh, Ricky Town doesn't work with Clarkson anymore. He works with other quarterback coaches. When he got to the Elite 11, he'd been this five-star guy in 247 sports, I think, had him as the number one recruit in the whole country. And Ricky Town struggled in a lot of these public settings this spring. And a lot of people are like, oh, he's overrated. He's the next, you know, Southern California bust and every, this and that. And I remember being around him, and I, you know, I'll be honest, it was kind of underwhelming to watch him compete and everything. And then he goes to the Elite 11. Right. And the last couple of days, he has great days there, and he shines. And, and you know, he tells, and his dad, there's, you know, this is the end of the book, or really one of the last pages in the book, is his dad is talking about how basically the kid came back, and he's a completely changed kid. They've re, you know, re-energized him. He had, you know, football wasn't fun to him, and all of a sudden, you know, they flipped the switch for him and showed him some things through a variety of, you know, the methods they use and, you, and get into it in the book. And all of a sudden now, it's like you changed my life, and that's what they're saying. And I think, you know, to see that again, this is all anecdotal, and we'll see. That doesn't mean Ricky Town's going to go on and, and become the next Carson Palmer or anything. Right. But I, I do think you get a, you get a, a sense of what these kids are up against and they're dealing with expectations and it's it's a lot different than 15 years ago you know when quarterbacks people might know who they were but they didn't really follow it you know right. they weren't evaluated on every little thing like they are now and i think so you get a lot of kids who feel like like it's a job to them and they burn out and there's some some major major uh frustration cuz they know they're quote unquote failing on a public stage all right and Obviously, on on a similar note, um, an extremely talented, you know, everybody wants him, blue chipper, four or five star, sixteen year old QB, is different than a a more finished nineteen twenty year old college QB who already looks like a, a proven NFL prospect. What is the the biggest mistake, I guess, that those prospects at sixteen and their families and whoever make when they're deciding on which college they're going to go to, and what's the biggest mistake on the other side that? coaches, skill coaches, position, whoever, make when they're evaluating that quarterback? I think it probably is getting too impatient with the situation. Mm -hmm. You know, if I would look at a guy like Bryce Petty who sat for, you know, basically five years and yeah. is now thriving, and you, you get to develop. And I think a lot of times you, you can learn a lot from sitting behind somebody and picking up things if you're really competitive and keep pushing. Whereas I, you know, I see a lot of other guys where they pull the plug and they transfer someplace else, and and who knows, the coaching staff could change once they get there. I mean, I think you do have to find a comfort zone with who's recruiting you and what kind of system you're in. Right. But ultimately, that system and those coaches could change, and then what do you do? So I think it's I think it's you know you, you got to fight the temptation to to. Uh, to, to, to run or quit or, or go someplace else because you don't know the situation that you're going to move into. It, it could change just as easily. All right, a couple questions from listeners. Uh, this is from Michael Franco. He says, what does Bruce think are the physical or mental skills slash attributes that a quarterback needs to have innately and be born with versus those that can be, that can be taught and learned? So I guess the nature versus nurture. You know, Dilfer's big on the more on the nurture side. Mm -hmm. I came away, you know, thinking there was something to that, but I do think nature is a big part of it. You know, and I would use Jeff Driscoll as an interesting example. Jeff Driscoll is big. Mm -hmm. He is tough. He can really run. He's got a strong arm. Uh, you know, guys who coach him said it's pretty accurate. But when things are starting to go sideways a little bit or a receiver drops a pass or right. something, it just seems like – you know, it, it, you know. Granted, this all doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's happened for a while, but it just looks like his confidence and his focus seems to erode. And I think certain guys have it where they respond great under mm -hmm. pressure, and other guys, you know, you wonder about it. I mean, I I spent a bunch of time around Devin Gardner. I think he's a terrific story of a kid who had been a bad student growing up and in some tough environments, and at Michigan has taken advantage of 
his situation and has been and has grown up and got it you know graduated in like three years and is now and going for his master's and is doing is going to do a lot of great things but on the field you know i think he sometimes i don't know if it's a lack of confidence or it's a lack of focus but right. you know it it hasn't worked out the way a lot of people you know thought it would for him and i think you know some of that's probably similar to what you have with with Driscoll, where they're guys with a lot of physical ability, but sometimes it doesn't work. And it's not because these guys aren't smart guys, because I know that they both are. It's just when things are going fast, um, it doesn't work. And, you know, in the book, I have this one chapter on, on Tom House, who's maybe the most interesting guy in the book. And, you know, he's he's was Drew Brees' guru and Tom Brady's guy and a bunch of other guys now go to him. And while I was, you know, I knew I had to have House in the book. You know, because right. he is different. And but while I was visiting him, you know, going out there all the time last fall, Tim Tebow was out there, and that was where Tim Tebow was spending every day after the Patriots cut him. To, you know, this was like his last chance. Mm-hmm. And you know, by well, three months later, Tom House tells me Tim Tebow's fixed. He's fixed, and he pronounces him like he's ready for the NFL. Well, by that time, you know, he'd already been through the, the Broncos and the Jets and the right. and the Patriots, and nobody wanted to buy in and didn't think he was, you know, they just were skeptical. And I remember going to the Combine a couple of weeks later after, you know, House was adamant that he was fixed. And, you know, House explained to me, he said he knows now when, a, when he throws an inaccurate pass, he knows exactly why and he can self-correct it. And he said back then, you know, when he played, you know, even – you know, even with the Broncos or the Jets or the Patriots, when he was running out, he ultimately did not have the confidence to complete a pass, a deep out. So he, you know, more confidence in his legs. So I'm going to try to do that. If you don't have confidence, you know, you're not going to succeed. And he goes, now he has that. But when I would talk to NFL people and coaches, they would say eh, they didn't buy it because this is said he's just not wired to be an NFL quarterback at a high level because they said when the decisions need to be made, we're talking about split seconds. Um, not something that can, you know, be in a film room or whatever. When it was real, he just could not process it fast enough to make the right decisions. They did not think. And to me, those are those are interesting debates and discussion mm-hmm. points. All right. And on a similar level, you've spent a lot of time around a number of prolific offensive minds in college football. This, I mean, it was last season where you, you embedded with uh, Manziel and Kevin Sumlin before the Alabama game. You, of course, write the uh, the Mike Leach book. Is there any is there a college coach out there who has been successful or very successful with quarterbacks who looks for something I guess maybe unusual when evaluating quarterbacks or unorthodox or puts them through any sort of interesting test? I remember Bill Parcells has like his whole like checklist when he drafts a quarterback he wants them to have a degree, this many starts, this ratio, whatever. The college guys, is there anything unorthodox system-wise when evaluating? You know, there's one that the first one that came to my mind. You said that is is uh, Jim Chaney, who was a former college, small college defensive lineman, mm-hmm. and uh, he coached Drew Brees at Purdue, and he's had some good quarterbacks. You know, now he's at Arkansas, and I remember Jim Chaney's big thing was basically how a guy grips the ball and what you know, his, like kind of um, what his wrist does, and he was very particular about it, and. You know, because I, I was around that Tennessee staff as he was evaluating quarterbacks. It was not a good class of quarterbacks to be coming through. That was the Tyler Bray, Jesse Scroggins group. And I remember they were gonging a bunch of guys who, mm-hmm. you know, quite honestly didn't turn out to be great quarterbacks that they had, you know, they shot down. But it was interesting to hear that side of, you know, what he looks for because there are specific things in footwork or whatever that some guys may like more than others or size. Right. But um, that was one that really stood out to me. Fair enough. All right. Go buy the book. Not you. You wrote the book. But everybody else, go buy the book. It's called The QB. It's available everywhere. Go on Amazon. Go. You know, the, the link is can be found. We'll, we'll tweet it out. We'll put it on Facebook, whatever. It's fantastic. I'm almost done with it. A uh, couple questions about the college season. Let's talk about how sports writers dress. Um, okay. Um, my first, I really don't want to get into playoff stuff because it's all so hypothetical and there's a month and a half left of football. Um, we, we sort of know who's good. We sort of know who isn't good at this point. To you, as you look back at what you expected would happen this season, what, what is the pleasant surprise and what are you, are you still a little bit shocked hasn't come to fruition the way you thought it would? I guess the pleasant surprise, I'm, I would go to two, you know, two in the Big 12 standout. It's the TCU offense, mm-hmm. 
and the West Virginia defense. The West Virginia defense to me is like a wow thing because mm-hmm. Tony Gibson is Daniel Holgerson's fourth defensive coordinator in four years, and he was a guy who, to be honest, a year ago was hired or a year plus ago was hired because he was a really good recruiter in that area that they needed help in. And then Holgerson loses the defense coordinator, and Tony Gibson gets promoted up, and he's done a really good job. I mean, he shut down or contained Baylor, and he did it without their two starting cornerbacks, which, and one of them is probably the best defensive player they got. Um, and, you know, this defense that was 91st in the country on third down defense, which is a really key stat to me, mm-hmm. um, in the last month, they're holding people to like 21% on third downs, which would put them in the top, you know, seven or eight in the country. And they do it in a league. Like I said, they. That, that was against Baylor. Uh, Oklahoma State is pretty good. Uh, I think Kansas is not good, and I forgot who the fourth team was. But just the fact that Baylor's in there alone, that should skew your stats, and Baylor was two for 15 on third down. Yep. So I would say those two stand out. Obviously, the Mississippi schools, you know, I would put in there as well. And Rich Rod's team, you know, to go in, Arizona to go into your alma mater mm-hmm. and win, that's saying something. That's not easy, and they only have one loss, and the loss came by a by a late second field goal without their leading rusher and without the starting offensive lineman, I think, you know, I think they've been a pleasant surprise too. All right, and when you look at top ten, top twelve, whatever, whatever the number of teams right now that will be in a, a postseason or playoff conversation later on, who do you feel most confident in? Who are who sort of is the recipient of your most questions? Um, it, it appears everybody is. Not deeply flawed, because that'd be ridiculous. They wouldn't be top 10 teams. But everybody has a a certain flaw that has been exposed at this point. Where where is your confidence and in both directions? My confidence would probably be most in Florida State. You know, I don't think they have a a meat grinder of a schedule. I think they have a ton of athletes. I know people Mm -hmm. are down on, you know, feel like their defense is underachieved, their run game is underachieved. Right. Now, when I saw Jameis Winston in the second half against Notre Dame, I mean, he he just was uh, almost perfect in the second half. And I think he's been in big games. I think he plays well in big games, and he's a leader. You know, they have Rashad Green, who I think is one of the five best receivers in the country. They got experience in the offensive line, which I think will – eventually bear out and they got they do have def- they have a ton of speed on defense so um i have the most confidence in in them quite honestly after that i have a lot of confidence in marcus mariota and the oregon offense i don't have that much in the defense but i think they're right. going to score a lot of people so um if i had to start with it, i'd say i'd start at florida state and i'm not sure you know where i'd be for second i guess i might be second on oregon because i just think Mariota's that good all right. Um, what is the single best? And I don't like the Heisman all that much because it sort of rewards a very narrow area of college football. What is the single best thing in college football this season? Whether it's a position group, an entire unit, an entire defensive, offensive side of the ball player, what to you is the closest thing we have in 2014 to college football perfection? Uh, wow. Um, there's really good running backs in the Big Ten. You know, it's weird because the rest of the Big Ten seems to be down. There's, there's outside of Connor Cook, I don't think there's very good quarterback play. Right. You know, Christian Hackenberg has talent, but he's struggling everything around him. You know, the Big Ten running backs are really good. Um, you know, I'm thinking of it from that. Uh, you know, obviously the SEC West is kind of eye popping. You know, in the in the depth of it, because I think Arkansas, after the worst team in the league, is the best worst team in a division you're going to have. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I would probably start with, I guess, those those things right now. Um, I'm sure there's going to be something that will pop in my head like four hours from now. I'll probably, you know, probably be like, you know, freshman tight ends or something like that. But right now I would say that. All right, fair enough. All right, the Belk Bowl, which is everybody's favorite Charlotte-based bowl, I think it used to be the Meineke Car Care Bowl, has a bracket. And we've discussed a lot on this show who you would build your sports writer starting five basketball team with. or And you, you just like ranking sports writers in various realms of life. Um, you've come across a lot of them. I imagine you probably have with all of these that I'm about to name. Uh, do you have the, by the way, do you have this bracket in front of you? Because I don't. I, I do. I, need, I can get it up get it up on my computer in a hurry. But. I have it in front of me. I'll just give you the matchups. And we will fill it out together. So the Belk Bowl, in an effort to raise awareness, has targeted 
some of the country's better-known college football writers and media members, whatever the case may be. By the way, this is a very – I think this is a very clever <laughs> it is. idea by the Bell they are, they are They are no – they are target marketing to a group of very stupid people yep. that they can play, and yep. they, are, they are doing this – uh, adeptly, there are there are probably millions of Twitter followers that are that have now seen this, and it's you know look there are thirty five bowl games. How do you distinguish yourself, especially when you get three four on the same day? Um, all right, the first matchup at the top, and I think it's already been released. So the matchup is matching up sports writers in terms of best dressed. It's a very high school superlativey thing. It's best dressed sports writer bracket. Uh, Travis Haney. From I believe ESPN against our yep. friend Andy Staples. He of very colorful pants and bow ties. Ooh, um, you know, here's the thing: what's going to happen with this? I'm going to preface this. Mm-hmm. And Andy, I've spent a bunch of time on the road with, but and I, I like Travis a lot. I've known him; he was an intern for us at ESPN Magazine. Right. I don't necessarily. Travis has kind of a nondescript, as far as I can tell, you know, wardrobe. I know he golfs a lot, but right. I don't know, like. You know, it's not like Travis wears like a bolo tie or whatever. That's Travis's thing. You know, right. I, I don't know exactly. You know, I've seen him a lot. I don't think he's a bad dresser. I don't think he's, you know, a, you know, I just, Andy, on the other hand, <laughs> um, you know, he goes Andy's trying. Andy is trying. And I do think, um, you know, I guess people, I'm guessing, did, this, was, this is the one that's already been finished. Uh, I'm not sure if I saw, I didn't see the results. Did Andy okay. take this one? I don't know. I don't okay. know. So, I, I, but I'm guessing Andy will be rewarded for trying more than Travis will. I'm not saying Travis doesn't, but I just feel like Andy tries a lot, you know. And um, the one thing I'll say is, uh, Andy, I was I was with Andy and Dennis Dodd in mm-hmm. Oxford, and after the game, um, we all went to a sports bar to watch other games. And I remember thinking Andy had on his tomato-colored pants and. I was like, man, I saw a bunch of dudes in the in the Grove wearing this, and that's not like I don't know if people look at it and go, okay, what Wright Thompson is wearing? That's like what people are wearing at Fashion Week, you know, or right. whatever kind of thing. So, um, but I give I give Andy credit for trying. He is trying, and there's somebody else in this bracket who I really want to talk about. So let's move on. Let's move forward. Yeah, Andy sort of dresses like. You want to take a picture with him at an amusement park for comfort food. That's... He, to me, Andy dresses like a big, young, southern politician. Yes. And I think, I think he's going for that. All right. Next matchup we have that, I mean, is, who, who do you specifically, I'll go through it quickly. We have Holly Anderson. When and we get to Hall. it, I'll point it out. There's somebody who, try, who makes Andy seem nonchalant. Let's go. All right. We have Holly Anderson and Spencer Hall, the, the sort of co-creators and co-editors of Every Day Should Be Saturday. Um, I know that you are not the biggest fan of the carpet that's on Spencer Hall's torso. No, it's, it's, I really thought it was fake novelty chest hair the first time I saw it. <laughs> no. It was... Yeah, um, I've that, been in a, that's like I've an accessory to him. Um, wow. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, Spencer, I'm putting Holly through on that. Holly moves. Yeah, just because that, you know, it's like, it's almost like he's like like a caveman <laughs> or whatever. So, and he, yeah, I don't know. Uh, he doesn't care, so no. he's, he'll. He, I'm sure he'll vote for Holly, too. Yes. Uh, Brett McMurphy uh, used to be a, a former co-worker of yours at CBS, yes. now at ESPN, and Lindsay Schnell, she formerly of the Oregonian and now of SI. True story. That's actually not a real mustache. Brett actually puts it on when he goes out in public. Every time. time. Every time. That's it's not incredible. real. Uh, I'm going to put Lindsay through, because I think Lindsay actually pays attention to this stuff, yes. and she's... You know, she cares about it. No, I don't think Brett cares. Brett looks like he should be selling you insurance. Also, Lindsay listens to this show. so Oh, another reason to vote for Lindsay. We're definitely voting for Lindsay. But doesn't Brett, I mean, and I love Brett. I think Brett's a great reporter. I liked working with him. I think he's a really good dude. Um, Brett looks like he should be selling you insurance, though. Yeah, but he always dresses cleanly. The, he does. It, he does. The look, clothes look, fit. This is not. This is not the like the twelve thirteen matchup that Travis and Andy seem to be. I think right. this is a little. Better, so. Okay. Uh, I have Bruce Feldman, Tom Fornelli. Okay, so I got to preface this by former the other colleagues. day. Yeah, yeah. Tom Fornelli, the other funny guy, right? The mm-hmm. other day from Chicago. The other day, 
Um, we're in our box green room and one of the higher up producers goes, started telling the story in front of me. He was like, so, you know, Bruce is in this bracket thing. And I was like, as if I had anything to do with it. Right. And he looks at me and one of the guys goes, do they know that Fox has a stylist and a wardrobe that like we're dressing you now or whatever? Right. And I said, and one of the people was like, well, who's he up against? And I said, and I mentioned the name, and they were unfamiliar. I said, basically, this was like the guy who was like the Larry the Cable guy of CBSSports.com. Right. So, like, you should win this. I'm like, I don't know about that. <laughs> you know, first of all, the fact that, you know, Fox does have a specific wardrobe person. And right. I'm, as far as I know, I'm the only one who doesn't dress myself anymore. Um, and I'm supposed to be, you know, like a lot of the other people aren't actually on TV, and they're not being made up. So it's not quite apples and oranges or whatever. Right. So, um so I don't know what to say, but if I, Tom should be a 15 or 16 seat. I'm not saying I should be a one or two, but Tom, right. I think is is a, was a is a really good uh, is a really good writer, and I think he's a funny guy. Um, but I think Tom, by the, by his own admission, would say he's pretty much um, Montana State in this thing. So. Okay, fair enough. Barrett Sally against Michael Felder from Bleacher Report. You know, I can't. I'm familiar with both of their work. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize, you know, I I feel like Michael Felder, from everything I know, is quite the character. Yes, he and, is. And from, from everything like, I know. Yeah, so I don't know. I would I would lean towards him on this, just because those guys who, like, try a lot usually seem to get rewarded in this kind of stuff. Sorry, Barrett. I think you're good, but I don't uh, know about the wardrobe part. Here's what I was told by our friend Bomani Jones, and I might get this wrong. Felder carries a koozie with him at all times in his back pocket and washes it with his clothing. Yeah, you know what? Maybe that's where I know all the weird stuff about him, because they are both got North Carolina ties. Bomani mm-hmm. has told me some weird stuff. That's Yeah, so I'll go, I'll go with Felder on that. All right, I've got Chantel Jennings against Sam Kahn Jr., both in the ESPN yeah. blogosphere. So Sam is the one, is is my favorite one in this bracket. Why have you ever that? seen Sam in person? I don't believe I have, but I'm a fan of his. Sam wore, like, has a jacket in his, it's not even a wardrobe, it's like an arsenal, has a jacket that looks like he is working at a movie theater. It's wow. bright red, it may be felt, and he, I think he has a derby, I think he has a cane oh, now that he no. starts wearing. I mean, if I have to vote for the whole bracket, and I think if I win, I get, I get the Sam Chantel next round, Right. Sam should win this. Sham, Sam he, should I take mean, the whole thing. Yeah, because, I mean, as much as Andy tries, I think Andy would have to vote for Sam. Fair enough. Uh, Plus, got... I, and Sam's younger. I don't think, you know, it's not like uh, Sam has, like, you know, the wardrobe money that, that Andy has. Right. So, Fair enough. Uh, that's, a, that's a young matchup in general. Um, yeah. The solid verbal matchup, myself and Ty. Oof. You know, I... <laughs> I, I I'm going to say, I, I would have to say you because you're friends in Mexico right now, but I feel like you're kind of going for like a, a young Bob Vila thing. With the, with the plaid? Yeah, with the plaid and the, and the kind of sweater jackets. And, yeah. No, I live in Brooklyn. That's sort of Kind of like given. a 30-something clean-cut Bob Vila. So, I, I mean, a... I, could, I could see you being like somebody's, some, somebody's adjunct professor. I take that as a huge compliment. So probably hitting on some of the students, maybe getting in, maybe getting into an, uh, an inappropriate relationship where you lose your job eventually. But but you, you, come on, you you could see that too. Oh, it's hitting close to home. Um, but you're, yeah, but you're not. I'm not saying you're high school hitting on high school. No, 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 no. No, it, it's, it is not the case at all. Okay, I'll happily move on. Um, and then we've okay. got the final matchup is the USA Today matchup. That's our friend Nicole Auerbach and our friend Paul Meyerberg. You know, I've hung out with Paul a little bit. I don't remember. I, I have no sense of what he wears. You know, I could see Nicole winning this contest. Nicole, I think Nicole, Nicole takes this one walking away. Yeah, I don't, I mean, I know what George Schroeder wears a lot. Right. I have no idea what Paul wears. Well, Paul's, he's generally at home, I believe. I remember seeing a picture. I don't remember who posted it. It was either George or Nicole of, like, the USA Today team. And everybody was in sort of, like, sport coats. And I think Nicole was wearing something nice. And Paul was wearing, like, a like a pullover and some flip-flops. I was like, all right. I think I know who's winning this matchup. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I was he was at the ASU game. We went to dinner the uh, the night before. I've been out, you know, been around him a couple of times. I just don't remember him wearing anything of you know like that. I was like, wow, he's really trying. Like so, of the of the people who I feel like really try who cover college football, it's basically Sam and Andy. And you know what? Ed Ashoff tries really hard. Yes. Um, I don't know. I would like to see Sam win. I think <laughs> just. I mean, he he really tries. It's it's like there should be like a a Sam, um, a little Sam wardrobe button to show his efforts on this. I wanted to write in Bill Snyder and his Buffalo Wild Wings Kansas State pullover, but not the case. Not happening. Um, all right, there's there's your champion, Sam Con Jr. ESPN covers. Who you uh, about? Who are you? Who's your uh, favorite in this? By the way, I, in all seriousness, yeah. You have three women in this. They mm-hmm. all should. They all should make it to the final four because I think one guys don't know how women dress. True. And they just will look and go, "Oh, it's women. We're going to vote the woman over the guy." Right. I've hung out with every single one of these women, and I would tell you if they were like they were wearing overalls or something weird like that. All of them looked professional and well dressed, and so I really don't. I could not separate. Uh, and I would just say that most of them are better dressed than all of all of the the male counterparts in this in this bracket. So Sam Con Jr. I I might give it to Andy, but I respect. Really, you think Andy's I just really well dressed? I, I haven't really seen Sam. I've seen Spencer wearing a a giant white leisure suit, and it was memorable. So, and if that's part of fashion, then there's that. I'm not. I I look. You know, Andy's one of my favorite people in the business. Yeah. Um, I'm not a huge fan of the bright orange jackets and bow ties. Yeah, I think you have to go with one specific part of your your ensemble being colored. I wouldn't go with everything being outlandish. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know. So then I'm just going to give it to myself. My clothes fit. Young how, blood. How feeling. hurt would you be if if Ty beat you? I'd be a little bit. I'd be irked. And not that Ty is not a good dresser. I'm just competitive, and yeah. I would I would like to move on to the next round and be. Summarily trounced. Who do, you, who do you get in the next round? I would get Nicole. Wow, you're not even giving Meyerberg a shot. No, I don't. I don't think I'd give Meyerberg a shot here. Hmm. Um, okay. But yeah, I, I'd at least like to to sort of win the uh, what, what would it be the eight nine matchup. I feel like Ty and I would be a good eight nine in here. I want to win that think, and then get think, trounced by What do you think I am too. with Fornelli? I've never seen Tom dress. I've never seen his clothing. You've never seen a picture of Tom. I don't. I don't even know if I have. We follow each other on Twitter, but that might be the extent of it. Yeah. Um, look, I, I I like hanging out with Tom. I thought he was a he was a good guy to work with. I still, mm-hmm. you know, kind of keep in touch with him over email a little bit. Right. So I can't imagine. You know, I don't know. I, I'd be curious what the seating were on these things. So yeah, that's come on, Belk Bowl, do better. Yeah. Um, all right. Once again, we've we've strayed a little bit, <laughs> a lot. From the QB, pick it up. Is there a specific website that people should go to to learn more? You can more? go to brucefeldman.com. Uh, you can buy the book in any form you want on brucefeldman.com. The uh, publisher helped me set that up. And um, But please buy the book. So Are you going to be touring at, at any point? At some point a little bit, yeah. I think I'm doing, actually going to do some things in New York City when I'm there for the week of the Heisman. And nice. We'll, we'll kind of pick up some stuff from that. Cool. Well, Bruce, thank you very much for your time. Everybody go read the QB. You can follow Bruce on Twitter, see all of his work on FoxSports.com, FoxSports1, everywhere. Uh, and we'll, uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks, Dan.